The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams, and Laura and Mike are not here today, but I do have a very special guest. We are going to be doing something a little bit different, which I will tell you about in just a moment. But we are joined by the host of the Bodies of Horror podcast and the new Reheated podcast. She's also been a guest on both our Children of the Corn Comfort Horror episode and our Coming of Age Horror episode on Ginger Snaps. Nicole Gobel, welcome back. Thank you so, so much. It's always wonderful to pop in and say hello to some of my favorite people. Oh, we just love it. So we are doing something just a little bit different today. This is a fifth Thursday, and it's the last fifth Thursday of the year. Um, I don't know why I got weird and ghosty. Anyways. Um, and so on these episodes, we like to do things just a little bit different. We have a pretty set structure with Comfort Horror episodes and with themes. So whenever we have a fifth Thursday, that's kind of our ability to kind of branch out or try something new. And so today we're going to do something we've been thinking about doing for a while and that is using um, a fifth Thursday to feature other podcasts with similar themes. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to have our very first guest pod episode, and it is going to be featuring the Fantastic Bodies of Horror podcast. Nicole is here to talk a little bit about her fantastic podcast, and then you're going to get to hear a full episode that she chose to share with us. So I'm so excited. Um, but before we dive into the episode, Nicole, I would love to know a little bit about why you wanted to start the Bodies of Horror podcast and what you kind of see as your mission for it? Well, I decided to start Bodies of Horror because one of the things that I had noticed is that in a lot of conversations around horror films in particular, there was never really the integration of talking about the disability aspect. Mm -hmm. And of course, being someone that is disabled, I always looked at those films through that lens. And so I took a minute and thought, well, am I just maybe being like really hyper-focused on something? Or is this just part of the conversation that people aren't really having? And that would be a great opportunity for someone to do it. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, had written a piece for the school uh, talking about some horror films and my relationship to them as someone with a disability and then it all just kind of unraveled from there and uh, I ended up submitting an application to Anatomy of a Scream and the rest is uh, two seasons in. Yeah, podcast history. Um, <laughs> well, and so I wanted to ask a little bit, I, I'm kind of springing this on you, but what was it like submitting that application? I kind of was involved through Joe Lipset, who's one of the runners of the network. But what was it mm -hmm. like kind of 
dreaming something up and then kind of working with them to get it out into the world? Super, super easy. So one of the things, and I don't know if this has changed because I think I was one of the like first mm-hmm. wave of folks, but um, you know, you submit, and if you're submitted, you get you know a reply saying we're really interested in moving forward with this, and you're kind of assigned a mentor. Mm-hmm. And Joe was my mentor, He's and <laughs> so wonderful because they're. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's one thing to have the idea, you know, you have to have the concept, you have to hash out, you know, some episode ideas. And of course, I think it only asked for a few and I went like, 12 feet. <laughs> I was like, there's basically everything I want to talk about mm. that I can come up with. There's probably more. And, um, you know, they're really great about it. The submission is really easy. Mm-hmm. They do also ask, which I'm not sure how it works with other places or other kind of, uh, I I guess, podcast networks, Mm -hmm. but you have to submit like a little bit of like a snippet Mm -hmm. of what you would want to do. So um, overall, that was really easy. And I think the follow up of helping you develop skills because, okay, so you have a podcast. How Mm -hmm. to podcast. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's been a really wonderful experience, um, and very easy. So definitely if it's something that someone who is interested in doing it and doesn't maybe have the experience, you know, don't, I encourage you to please don't feel overwhelmed and give it a go because it could be something that's really, really powerful and a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know Joe in particular is just a fantastic mentor and he's helped me with writing and kind of helping me figure out the ins and outs of that. And Valeska also is um, involved with Grimm Magazine and she has been really, really encouraging with me um, on the writing side of kind of my horror fandom. So yeah, it is. But it's the kind of thing that feels really intimidating and it is a lot of work and it's not like you don't just snap your fingers and you have an episode, but they are really Mm -hmm. good at guiding you through all of the the details exactly well and so you mentioned that you just started season two but I would love to hear about some of your favorite episodes or films that you covered in season one so I went back and revisited some films it's you know I think something that we often do Mm -hmm. when we're going through horror films it, you know the podcast gives us an excuse mm-hmm. to sometimes go back and be like I remember really liking this movie but let's see how it holds up to now yeah knowing and- that I'm gonna analyze it too I know <laughs> <laughs> exactly so um one of the films that really kind of surprised me uh in the first season was Silver Bullet mm. um I remember watching it long ago and thinking it's fine Mm -hmm. and then really kind of finding it a bit more nuanced and a Mm -hmm. little whimsical Mm -hmm. um so and i i love stephen king Mm -hmm. and so it's yeah it really itched a lot of scratches and Mm -hmm. i really had a good time with that and it also gave me an excuse to watch um 
one of my all-time favorites, Dr. Giggles, <laughs> which uh-huh. do not, you know, I know it's cliche to be like, people aren't talking about X enough. Well, mm-hmm. people are never talking about Dr. Giggles enough. They so. are not. And that is, that is a really fun and fascinating movie. <laughs> it's so bizarre. It really is. Yeah. yeah, it's it's really good. But I would say like, one of the the episodes that really I think formed the backbone of what the pod really I think how I kind of envisioned it was the episode talking about Franklin mm-hmm. from Texas Chainsaw Massacre because even to this day I get a little bit <laughs> uh, revved up when someone's like, "Oh, Franklin's the worst," and I'm like. Mm-hmm. really now yeah you're very protective of franklin (laughs) and you changed my my mind on him too i loved that episode yeah and it's he's one of my favorite characters because i just find him so interesting Mm -hmm. and everything is a choice Mm -hmm. with him and it's it's really really uh I, i i like that was really where i think the spine of it started because i'm like i gotta talk about this character Mm -hmm. first and foremost um so yeah i would say like favorite episodes of the first season you know it's it's always going to start with franklin Mm -hmm. but talking about silver bullet because i love stephen king and i was really you know it was a film that really kind of shifted Mm -hmm. in my mind rewatching it um that was the delight and it was a lot of fun going back to Dr. Eagles. Yeah. Well, and I really enjoyed your episode on another um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre character, Leatherface. And I think you paired him with Jason mm-hmm. from Friday 13th franchise, which I thought that was really fascinating. And not characters I would have thought to look at through the lens of disability, but it absolutely is a, you know, a really fascinating interpretation of those characters and a really, I think, important aspect of their characterization, which is what you go into in that episode. So I would highly recommend that one also. And and so I said that you had just started season two, but I think you actually started a little while ago. Like you're kind of in the middle of season two now, right? Yes, we we are hot uh, in the middle of it. And yeah, this season wanted to change things up a little bit and uh, not only just cover some different kinds of films, but really focus on different aspects of the disability experience. Mm-hmm. I had my first episode with a guest Ooh. and that was a lot of fun. <laughs> um, so it. You know, because it's one thing if it's just me uh-huh. talking and, you know, like I always say, I'm basically talking to my cat <laughs> about a movie because she'll just kind of perch by the computer and mm. I'll be like, so here's here's my thoughts on this. What about you? <laughs> right. um, <laughs> exactly. Um, so it, it, that was a lot of fun. So, yeah, season two is up and going and going strong. Yeah. What's what's some stuff that's coming up? Can you give us a tease? Yeah, so um, one film that is coming up is actually one that you guys covered, um, which I am so excited about, um, Raw. <gasps> I am and a new then, convert to French Extremity. I'm like, I need all of this, except yes, I'm still not ready for Mars. I, I saw it in the theater, just kind of like, 
I had heard about it, you know, oh, this is so, so intense. And I saw it was playing at the uh, indie theater nearby. And so I'm really, I, I, I've talked about it, before, I, I think on the pod, but like cannibalism, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is my favorite movie of all time. Mm-hmm. But cannibalism just does something to me. And mm-hmm. so I, I was like, all right, I'm making bold moves and just doubling down and seeing this in mm. a very, like, small theater that's going to have a lot of people and I'm going to feel some kind of way. Mm-hmm. And it it really, really was spectacular. So I I did an episode on that, kind of tapping into cannibalism looking at it through kind of a hereditary illness. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. And then uh, one of my favorite films of this year, Old. Yes. Yes, that is a fascinating one. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I talked a little bit about in the first season, and I'm doing an episode uh, further down this season on is really honing in on the intersection of ageism mm-hmm. and uh, ableism. Because one of the things that when we talk about ageism in particular is usually kind of rooted in ableism. It's because, you know, as we age, our bodies shift, change, mm-hmm. work in different ways, and that can be rooted in, you know, disability Mm -hmm. um frailties of aging and that it all kind of uh comes together so uh old was a a real trip (laughs) and so it was a great kind of touch point to kind of ease into that topic i think Oh, that's, and that is something that I think is, there's a lot to talk about with that and something that as I get older myself, I start to think about. Um, Well, so tell us about the movie that you chose to share with us for this episode. So I thought it would be only appropriate to share a film that I think honestly touches on a a little bit of what you guys cover so well. Um, One of the things that I've stated from the beginning is that I try not to go too much into uh, mental health Mm -hmm. and mental illness in what I cover because that's not really my wheelhouse Mm -hmm. but one of the films that I covered recently it was a really difficult navigation to steer completely away from that because it was so integrated Mm -hmm. um and that is monkey shines oh talk about a film that takes turns i was floored watching this because it was a film i avoided as a kid Mm -hmm. i remember it's one of those video covers Mm -hmm. that you see and it kind of freaks you out And so I remember watching, I think, part of it, but not getting through through it all. And then was like, well, it's a good time to double down and just watch. Mm-hmm. And wow, um, I was really floored by not only just the disability components, but how I think it talks about mental health mm-hmm. and how that 
interplays with disability mm-hmm. in a lot of fascinating ways. And so I thought it would be a really great episode to share here because I think it's kind of a, a, a fascinating uh, connection. That's awesome. And I actually haven't seen Monkey Shine, so it'll be a first watch for me. And one of the things that we normally do um, on psychoanalysis is we give a synopsis at the beginning. So for listeners that maybe have not seen Monkey Shine, would you suggest we watch the episode before we listen? I mean, I tend to do a pretty, because I'm kind of horrible, unless it's a film that I'm, that's on my must watch list. Mm I'm a little lenient in going in to a podcast without having watched it or recently. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's always value in watching something. So you're coming in with some of your own ideas mm-hmm. um, that can kind of be percolating in your brain mm-hmm. while listening. But uh, no, I think the the overall discussion, I think, does a good job at covering all the main plot points. but. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure I missed some too. So if you oh, watch well. it, you're going to play that game. <laughs> nice. <laughs> what did I not cover? <laughs> Lots of times I will watch or listen to an episode of a movie that I'm too scared to see sometimes. And that like softens the blow a little bit for me. Like I have listened to episodes on Martyrs and have not watched Martyrs yet. Because uh, I, I feel like that's my white whale of... Um, I'm too scared to watch it at this point. But, um, well, I'm looking forward to watching that movie and to listening to your discussion on it. Cause that's, that's, I, that connection for me is that people confuse it as a Stephen King movie because of the book Skeleton Crew, because it has the monkey on it. And so I remember yep. when we were talking about Skeleton Crew talking about that movie and so I'm really excited to seek it out and yeah so we are going to drop that episode in um, and we will be back at the very end but we're going to get to listen to the full episode and then we'll tell you how you can find more of Bodies of Horror when we return. This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we look at some of our favorite horror films from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, through the lens of disability. I'm your host, Nicole, and I'm thrilled to have you here. So, what is on the examination table for this episode? The 1988 film Monkey Shines, or Monkey Shines, an experiment in fear, directed by the George A. Romero. very clear and horrific memories of seeing some of this when I was maybe eight or nine. I think I mentioned in the very first episode of this podcast that my sister would never allow me to watch movies with her and her friends when I was little. So I had a little spot near our stove in the kitchen where I could see the TV from an appropriate distance and it also provided the benefit of being able to hide if things got too scary. I have a huge soft spot for animals and even at the age I was, was suspicious of any film, uh, particularly any horror film that put an animal front and center because I knew things might turn rough for them. I managed to get through most of it with lots of adverting my eyes. 
uh, when I thought that uh, things might uh, turn a little bad for our little capuchin monkey friend. To be honest, I don't think I had really watched it in its entirety until maybe I had come across it on cable when I was in high school, where I did watch it through to the very end. To this day, I feel a sense of anxiety when I'm about to watch any film where an animal may experience the slightest sense of discomfort, but that particular go was more manageable. Now don't worry. There isn't going to be a detailed and graphic description of animal abuse or cruelty here because honestly the film doesn't go as hard as little Nicole imagined it did. There will be conversation about suicide in this episode however and probably a bit more in depth than in other episodes where that's been a part of the film or films we're discussing. I'll give a heads up when we arrive to the point of that in the discussion in case that's a place you don't want to go. With all of that said, let's get in to Monkey Shines. A man trapped by his own body. To Alan, to the start of his new life. So you train monkeys exclusively for quadriplegics? How about if I were to donate a monkey? She hasn't been exposed to anything weird in the lab. No. An animal trained to follow commands. How am I supposed to take care of it, Jeff? The idea is that it's going to take care of you. She's unbelievable. She's like a miniature person. <laughs> Get rid of that bird or so help me. One with the mind for revenge. I've been so full of anger. I've had the most horrible thoughts lately. I made up a formulation based on human memory cells. I've been injecting one of my monkeys. I don't like this change in you, Alan. The other with the instinct to kill. What the hell are you doing to her? Ella is getting out of the house, and I'm getting out with her. You do know that that's impossible. Man is the only animal capable of murder. She did it for me. Did it because I wanted it done. Stop it! From the director of Night of the Living Dead, George A. Romero, the master of terror and suspense. You're not gonna hurt me. I'm part of you. Monkey shines on you into terror. Law student and athlete Alan is struck by a truck and rendered quadriplegic following surgery. As his overbearing mother and strict nurse try to help him, Alan, now in an SNP or Sip and Puff, equipped wheelchair, struggles to adjust. He eventually attempts suicide. His friend Jeffrey suggests he get a capuchin monkey as a service animal to lift his spirits and help around the house. Jeffrey has an ulterior motive, however. He is a research scientist under pressure to produce results, and he has been dosing a monkey in his lab with a serum to boost its intelligence. And he believes that the serum's effects will be amplified if the monkey is around humans. Jeffrey enlists Melanie, a specialist in training helper monkeys. Jeffrey provides the capuchin he has been experimenting on, lying to both Melanie and Ellen that the monkey is completely normal. Ellen names the monkey Ella, and he and Melanie were closely training her. Initially, Ella is a huge help to Ellen, 
And, meanwhile, Ellen grows very close to Melanie. However, as time passes, Ellen grows more short-tempered and resentful. Ella, too, becomes more aggressive. Alan dreams of running through the grass at night, and he believes that he has a telepathic link with Ella, whom he suspects can escape the house. Jeffrey finds evidence confirming this, but pleased with Ella's intelligence, does not tell Alan or Melanie. After the pet bird of Alan's nurse flies around him, the irate Alan wishes it were dead, and that night, Ella stealthily kills the bird, causing the nurse to quit. Alan gets a second opinion about his paralysis and discovers that he may have been misdiagnosed. Another surgery may enable Alan to walk again. Before attempting the risky surgery, the doctor needs Alan to demonstrate some ability to move an appendage. Rather than feeling happy at this news, Alan is filled with anger at the surgeon who originally misdiagnosed him and who happens to now be dating Alan's former girlfriend. He fantasizes about burning the man's cabin down, and that night, Ella escapes and does just that, killing the surgeon and his girlfriend. After seeing news of the fire, the horrified Alan believes that Ella has been carrying out his dark impulses. He also realizes that when he is around Ella, he becomes easily enraged. Alan demands that Jeffrey take Ella away for good, and Jeffrey does so under protest. With Ella gone, Alan becomes more relaxed. He spends a weekend at Melanie's house, and the two begin a romance. Alan returns home and mends bridges with his mother, but he suddenly feels outraged at her disapproval of Melanie. Alan realizes that Ella must be nearby, and Ella has returned to the house after escaping Jeffrey's lab again. Alan's mother ignores his desperate warnings that she leave and instead takes a bath. Ella electrocutes her with a hairdryer. Alan briefly answers a call from Melanie before Ella disables the phone. Concerned, Melanie departs for Alan's house. Jeffrey arrives and confesses that Ella was an experimental subject. The enraged Alan urges Jeffrey to leave, concerned for his safety, with Ella around. Instead, Jeffrey pursues Ella around the house, intending to put her down with one of the syringes of tranquilizers he has brought. Ella manages to take one of the syringes and injects Jeffrey, killing him. Ella returns to Alan, who is filled with self-loathing because he believes Ella is acting out his own impulses. He screams at Ella, but the monkey responds by urinating on him. Melanie arrives, and Ella attacks her. This finally convinces Alan that Ella is not simply carrying out his desires. Melanie falls and is knocked unconscious. As Alan rages at Ella, she ignores him and prepares to inject Melanie with one of Jeffrey's syringes. Alan calms himself and moves his right arm to engage his tape deck. A peaceful music plays as he lovingly summons Ella to cuddle close to him, and she complies. When Ella is by his head, Ellen bites her in the neck and kills her. Later, Ellen undergoes a successful spinal surgery. He and Melanie leave the hospital together, and Ellen carefully stands up from his wheelchair to get into the van with her. One of the reasons I wanted to cover this film is because we have a character in Ellen that is experiencing disability in a different way than many of the characters we've covered here. His experience with disability is very new, and the film explores how someone adapts to that situation. 
What makes this particularly interesting in this film is that we spent essentially no time with Alan prior to his accident. As a viewer, it creates a weird dynamic with how we process Alan's journey because we're not just starting at the same place as him or a lot of the other people we meet in his life. Alan is a bit of an insufferable asshole, particularly as the film goes on, and that is to say he's a flawed protagonist, but one I found really relatable. He seems despondent, almost in shock for a bit of time after the accident. We get a couple of scenes of him in the hospital as he's recovering before he's discharged home, and he just has this blank kind of expression on his face and isn't really reactive to anything. Things are happening around him and folks are trying to talk to him, but he's in his own head. People are asking how he's feeling, but not asking how he's feeling. When Alan returns home, he has to reconcile former and present normal. He's in a familiar space, but that space looks different now, outfitted with tools and devices and furniture that are unfamiliar. The welcome home party that his mom, Dorothy, has for him immediately tells us and him that it isn't just the space around him that has changed, but the relationships, the way that people interact with him has changed as well. The fact that Alan has to navigate all of this without the proper emotional, mental supports is kind of heartbreaking and helps us understand his actions and outbursts as the film progresses. Now, we can't talk about Alan without talking about Ella because Ella becomes an extension of Alan and an outlet for the frustration and anger he isn't able to process. Ella is a gift of sorts from Alan's friend, Jeffrey. Rattled, finding Alan after his suicide attempt, Jeffrey wants to find some way to support his friend while having the bonus of furthering his research. Alan and Ella form a quick bond, and it's no mystery why. They share trauma. Ella is Jeffrey's test subject. Our ideas around animal cruelty in regards to animal testing have evolved quite a bit in recent years, and we recognize that her being subjected to this experimentation isn't humane by any stretch, and Alan is still processing the accident. In Alan, Ella has a companion that won't mistreat her, and Alan has found a companion that shows affection and care. While the film doesn't paint many of the characters in the kindest of light, it certainly frames Ella as our villain, as our plot synopsis kind of broke down. At first, Alan thinks that Ella is simply acting out on his dark impulses, these moments of rage and anger that he's experiencing that he doesn't quite understand. But he quickly begins to uh, piece together that he only experiences these outbursts when Ella is around and when Ella attacks Melanie. He begins to think that perhaps it's not just Ella acting on his wishes, but acting on her own accord. And I kind of push back on this. I think that Ella's 
anger is acting out purely on the complicated emotions that Alan isn't ready to handle and uses Ella as a scapegoat for that. Almost everyone in Alan's life treats him kind of terrible post his accident in varying degrees and we'll piece out these relationships that highlight that because that it simply becomes Alan feeling anger towards not just the way that some of the individuals closest to him are acting but his inability to express it in a way that is healthy because he hasn't been given those tools to do so everything is so new to him that the uncomfortable act of calling people out on their shit when they do something whether intentional or unintentionally harmful is even more challenging. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the people in Alan's life and the relationships because I think that this is really fundamental in understanding Alan's relationship with his disability. And the first person I want to talk about is our nurse or home health aide, Marianne. She's hired by Alan's mom and we meet her at the welcome home party that his mom has for him when he gets out of the hospital. And right away we see that these are going to be two people that do not get along. She's really kind of abrasive and she is falls into a trope, I guess, of the uncaring care character. The person that is supposed to personify someone that's a caregiver, someone that is there to support someone, but acts in a completely contradictory way. And we see this with not only her being a little standoffish, but she soon just kind of becomes aloof to Alan and doesn't really do anything to help him and is more concerned about herself and her bird than taking care of him or, you know, really being helpful in any way. He ends up calling her uh, Nurse Ratchet, I think, once or twice in the film and yeah it's just it's a very antagonistic relationship she calls him ungrateful like i said he refers to her as nurse ratchet and uh, i think is the first person that he really lashes out at when her bird kind of attacks him and this uh, makes her and the bird kind of the first targets of ella ella breaks out of her cage and kills the bird and leaves the bird in the slipper of Marianne. And it's kind of a pretty badass move by Ella. Um, I in no way condone the death of the bird, but it's very godfatherish in that way. It's like, you know, you're, you could be next, Marianne. You better step back. So Marianne gets out. She doesn't, she doesn't dawdle. She doesn't, uh, kind of wait around for things to escalate any further. She, she is scrams and so she's pretty short-lived in the film in that regard but she does make an impact because again she falls into the trope of the uncaring care and is really the flip side to the next character that I want to talk a little bit more about and that is Alan's mom Dorothy where Marianne fell into the trope of the uncaring care mom falls into the overbearing to a pretty toxic degree care and there are many many examples of that um I think I've mentioned a few in previous episodes but you know it's that parent that will do anything for their kid and crosses many kind of boundaries and it really becomes less about the care that they're providing to their kid and more about 
optics on them, how people are perceiving them. You know, it's demonstrated, I think, pretty clearly from the very beginning when she has this welcome home party for Alan. Let's put ourselves in Alan's shoes for a minute. And you've just had this accident. You're home from the hospital after, you know, usually a pretty prolonged stay because it's usually a mix of hospital and some type of rehabilitation. So you're home after a pretty long time. Maybe the last thing on your mind is a convening of all of your friends. And one thing that I think this film does so well is Alan seems really uncomfortable at the party and we get the interactions with all of these folks that we'll get to know a little bit more throughout the film and we get that taste of how these dynamics have shifted you know i'll talk a little bit about a a few more as we go on here but it's really well done but you can tell that this is something that his mom wasn't really thinking well this is something that alan would really want she doesn't ask him you know do you want to have a bunch of people over when you get home it's kind of a welcome home get to see everyone again It's not on his priority list. After Alan's attempted suicide, Dorothy tells him that she's just going to move in, that she's selling her business and is going to be there full time to take care of him, even though he still has Marianne at that point. She comes back after Marianne leaves and kind of does the same thing. Now, sure, this is a a thing that we may not be able to think is too beyond a, a normal reaction for a parent when their child has experienced something like this. And wanting to be there for your kid when they're obviously struggling is a, is a normal thing and a good thing but her approach to it is completely i think equal parts overbearing and by overbearing i do mean more she's not asking alan about what he wants she's not talking to him about um you know how she can help him in ways that are truly beneficial to him she's really kind of thinking about it in a more selfish way how it will look for her when people see that she's given up so much to take care of alan things like that is kind of what i'm getting at when i talk about you know the overbearing aspects of it she also um there's a moment where uh it's after marianne has left and she's giving uh, alan a bath or helping him in the bath and you could tell he feels uncomfortable and she's like look i'm your mom nothing i haven't seen before and you it's a really interesting moment because i think it also highlights why um kind of this weird uh kind of relationship that sometimes individuals have with family that are caring for them and why having people like marianne come in and provide care is really important or certain kinds of care is important because you know having your mom as an adult help you in the bath is uncomfortable and having someone that that's their job uh can help decrease some of that uncomfortableness of course it may always feel a tinge kind of invasive in some way but having that i think buffer really does sometimes make individuals feel uh, a little bit more comfortable and that's something that i think you know, that scene really demonstrates and again is showing that Dorothy isn't really uh, taking in what Alan's needs are. So instead of being able to tell his mom uh, in, I think, a, a healthy way, you know, you've overstepped some bounds. I don't want you here. I want you to kind of maintain your own life. He goes completely overboard and 
screams at her, um, calls her some names, and she she slaps him and takes a bath, as you do. And Ella then kills her by throwing the hairdryer in the bath. Ella is once again kind of used as that scapegoat for Alan, dealing with a lot of anger that he just doesn't know how to process and deal with. So the next character that I want to talk about is Alan's ex-girlfriend, Linda. So we see Linda at the very beginning of the film when Alan is going for his run, right before his accident, and then we see her again at the welcome home party. Now, Alan and Linda have been broken up. They're still together, but we learned that Linda didn't come and visit him in the hospital. And Alan is obviously a little upset by that. And Linda seems really kind of flustered at the party and uncomfortable and doesn't really know what to do. So they subsequently end the relationship and she begins dating Dr. Wiseman, which I'll talk about next. It's, you know, what I find really interesting about this is that we don't really necessarily get Linda as a, you know, we don't see what she did as villainous or, you know, mean. Perhaps you could say it's a little bit cold. We don't necessarily see her as being vindictive. She doesn't rub her new relationship with Dr. Weissman in Alan's face as kind of a fuck you. She doesn't do anything along those lines. It's, you know, simply her being a person not, I think, fully equipped to be in a relationship where she would have to take on a slightly different role that she was uncomfortable with. Should she have had, I think, probably more direct conversations with Alan about it? Sure. But sometimes that's just not how things unfold. And she got out of a relationship that wasn't working for her, and that's kind of what you have to do in those situations. There are certainly a thousand other ways that she could have handled the situation, but I think she did what she could to kind of exit the relationship while causing as little upset to Alan as possible. It reminds me a lot of Danny and Christian in Midsommar. Christian wants to leave the relationship with Danny. Danny experiences the loss of her family and ends up uh, staying with her, I think, out of a misplaced sense of obligation, where A ends up doing a lot more harm, I think, to her and ultimately himself by staying in this relationship. So again, she could have handled things perhaps a little bit differently, but I think leaving the relationship when you're simply not there and you're not able to kind of, I think, meet the needs of that partner, I think is honestly one of the better outcomes that you can, can go for. While Alan is obviously hurt at the end of the relationship, I don't think that he's ever truly really angry at her. I think he's hurt. I think he's sad, but I don't think that he's necessarily angry. I think that he has so many other kind of complex emotions that kind of obscure that. I think when Ella goes and takes out both her and Dr. Weissman, I think it's really more targeting Dr. Weissman and Linda being there is just kind of a, a bonus in some ways to get at someone else that had caused him uh, pain. So it's it's a complicated thing, but I'm glad that they took the route that they did with this character of not her being this completely over the top, ridiculous, villainous woman that is 
at almost all points rule. And that segues nicely into the polar opposite, which is Melanie. So Melanie becomes the new love interest. She is the trainer of Ella, and her job is training monkeys to be service animals, particularly for individuals who are quadriplegic. And she is really in this film the one character that is just purely nice and good, despite her having kind of a full workload with the animals that she's currently training, she is willing to help out Jeffrey when he comes to her and asks if she'd be willing to help train Ella so that he could give her to Alan. And we see the first time, I think it's the first time, that Melanie and Alan meet. She goes over to the house and she is equipping Alan's wheelchair with kind of the treat dispenser for Ella. And there's just this really simple moment where, you know, she's putting it onto his chair and she asks, you know, is this okay? And it's a really simple moment moment and it's an important one because it really hits home the fact that this is one of the first people in the entire film that has checked in with Alan. Hey, is what I'm doing, is the way that I'm helping, is this action that I'm doing okay? Are you uncomfortable? She's checking in and this is obviously her, her wheelhouse. This is what she does. So it's kind of second nature to her but you could tell that it does strike a certain chord with Alan because it is unexpected. There's also a moment where where uh, she takes Alan fishing at a point where their, you know, relationship is progressing and they're spending more time together. And it's clear that Alan isn't having a good time. He's a little frustrated and they just kind of pack up and go home. You know, she is able to deduce when a situation isn't working and kind of lean into that and make a move to make everyone feel a little bit more comfortable. So I, Melanie, and Alan take their relationship to the next level and have sex during, I think, a weekend where he goes and stays with her. I found the sex scene between Melanie and Alan pretty interesting. I do have a background in doing some trainings around sexual health and disability. One of the biggest issues, and I know I've mentioned this before, is that individuals with disabilities often don't get the kind of sexual education that they need to be able to talk about their bodies, their wants, their needs in those kinds of scenarios. And so to have a scene where it's two consenting adults figuring out what's going to work for them, utilizing some some furniture, some tools there, and having a good time, I think is really, really cool. It also is a scene that kind of makes me even more annoyed at the ending of the film, which I will get to here in a bit. But um, the only thing that kind of rubbed me the wrong way about the sex scene is that it literally occurring in a room right next to a room full of monkeys and they're all losing their minds over it so it's kind of hilarious in that way but overall I think it's a really great scene to include in this because it shows that I think it shows us and Alan that of course he can still have the same kinds of relationships he's always had and it's just about finding that right person, as it almost always is. So I applaud its inclusion on that level. And it's always nice to see a character with disability trade in a way that they have sexual agency and are having a good old time. So their relationship has really hit kind of this high mark. And Alan has essentially chosen Melanie over his mom. His mom is really upset when he comes home from this weekend. Now, 
I completely understand where mom is coming from in that she's not able to reach or get in touch with Alan during his time with Melanie and why she would be concerned. But just the established relationship that we've seen so far, she obviously has taken this to a different level and their relationship is really kind of toxic and inappropriate in some ways. The anger that Alan has towards her, I think, is really about setting boundaries and his inability to really advocate for those boundaries. And so it's in juxtaposition to his relationship with Melanie where he doesn't necessarily have to do that. She's the one that's asking certain questions and really kind of attuned to him in a way that others aren't. So not to say that you know, mom then deserves to be taken out, but, you know, just the toxic nature of their relationship, how kind of awful she is to Alan in some moments, there's really not a ton of love lost when she dies because she's just been so to Alan in a lot of respects. The second to last character that I want to talk about is Dr. Weissman. He's a surgeon that operates on Alan right after his accident. Dr. Weissman falls into a similar category as Marianne, the uncaring carer, but I do want to piece it out just a little bit more as it pertains to him. He misdiagnoses Alan's injuries, essentially resulting in Alan's quadriplegia, and he gets a double whammy of starting a relationship with Linda, fresh out of leaving Alan. Now, let's talk a little bit about the uncaring carer trope as it relates to Dr. Weissman. He's a competent doctor. He performs a surgery that he sets out to do on Alan. Uh, very well. The other surgeon who comes in and identifies the uh, other, uh, I guess, uh, congenital defect in uh, Alan's spine says just that. Well, yeah, he did a fine job with this surgery that he performed, but he missed this. And of course, looking at the x-ray in the movie, you know, a layman isn't going to necessarily be able to see what, you know, a doctor, trained professional in that field is going to be able to identify. So it just looks like a normal section of spinal cord. But apparently there's a congenital defect that was missed in the surgery. And the surgeon goes on to say, well, you know, he was treating uh, the injury from the accident. And it's kind of saying it it kind of makes sense that he may have missed this in kind of that emergency triage situation. So, Alan is of course upset by the fact that Dr. Weissman didn't treat the proper injury. And I want to talk, I'll, I'll go into the misdiagnosis at the end. Um, but I, you know, that's obviously kind of the crux of Alan's anger with Dr. Weissman, as well as him starting the relationship with Linda. But Dr. Weissman is a bit self-absorbed, a bit pompous, but all in all, it seems fairly pleasant uh, when dealing with Alan and his family. He doesn't, uh, you know, he doesn't say anything that's too cruel, too uh, kind of off-base. He's a professional. And, yeah, like I said, he's a little bit schmarmy. At the welcome party, at the welcome home party for Alan, you know, he's making these googly eyes at Linda. We have no idea of what their relationship is at that point. 
uh, Linda is obviously in her own uh, kind of world at that uh, party and just dealing with the fact that she needs to kind of exit this relationship with Alan. And so, you know, there's nothing to give us any indication that they've established, you know, a relationship that they're dating at their at that point. But, you know, he's being a little predatory on her, you know, just kind of like uh, inserting himself in her space in a way that I think is clearly making her uncomfortable. And I would say that's probably, you know, the one uh, bit with him that really kind of makes you dislike him. Otherwise, he's just kind of your run-of-the-mill, you know, kind of full-of-themselves jerk that you can brush off. And I I find it interesting that so much anger that Alan has is, I think, rightfully placed. It isn't necessarily about the relationship with Linda. As I mentioned when talking about Linda, I think Alan has come to kind of this understanding about that, that, you know, if someone doesn't want to be with me and they leave, it can be hurtful. I can have complex feelings about it. But at the end of the day, it is just that, you know, it's not a relationship that is meant to flourish. And of course, at this point, he and Melanie have established a much healthier I would say relationship. So I don't think that he's yearning um, for Linda in that way. So his anger is really focused on the fact that Dr. Weissman didn't notice or didn't acutely understand the impact that this congenital defect on the spine had had and that that was a real issue that was causing uh, his paralysis. So the result is that Dr. Weissman gets taken out. And Dr. Weissman gets taken out along with Linda as our plot synopsis so uh, astutely described. There is a house fire, and uh, Ellen is getting visions of it from Ella's POV, because of course she's someone that's uh, setting the flames, and Alan struggles with this. Uh, his mom is with him at the time, and he comes down, and she's just heard the news, and she relays that to Alan. As upset as Alan is, I think he then begins to really connect a lot of dots of, you know, his kind of toxic emotions are having an impact on the well-being of these people around him. And I think that that makes kind of this realization, even this news of the fire and the realization of what's going on a lot worse. Now, if it sounds like I'm giving Dr. Weissman a pass, it's not necessarily so. One of the things, especially for individuals with disabilities and their relationship with their healthcare providers, is that it's really important to have trust and comfort in being able to talk to them and continue that relationship. Um, you know, we are not in a position of where, you know, once a year we go in and get, you know, a checkup or we see our doctors in a sporadic nature. We're often seeing our doctors with some more regularity and that regularity combined with the additional kind of health concerns means that we have to be able to have open dialogue with them. We need to be able to talk to them about how we're feeling about certain things, be able to give them updates on any kind of changes. All of that complexities within the relationship exist. And if, you know, there's not trust and a comfort there, that's really damaging. And it's not, I think, a fruitful, uh, you know, relationship to continue. So, you know, Dr. Weissman kind of sacrifices a healthy relationship with his patient in order to pursue a relationship with Linda. And, you know, again, 
going back to, you know, the feedback that the other surgeon gives is that, yeah, he's competent, but he's also kind of an asshole and, you know, really full of himself. And because of that, he can be kind of sloppy sometimes and miss really important things. So, no, Dr. Weissman, not a good dude. But I think as we've talked about with some of these characters, not necessarily the uh, cartoon-level villain that we may come to expect in films like this. Now, the last character I want to talk about is Jeffrey, Alan's best friend and the researcher that brings Ella into Alan's life. So, Jeffrey, to me, is the very definition of a horrible person, but a really great friend. Now, I've talked about Jeffrey as we've talked about other characters, but I think one of the things that's really important to hit on here is that he truly is the best friend to Alan that he can be. He's there for Alan in ways that others aren't. He respects Alan, talks to Alan as, you know, a person when he first gets home. And we see that some of those other relationship dynamics change where people, you know, are uncomfortable around Alan because they don't know what to say. Where Jeffrey doesn't miss a beat. And Jeffrey obviously cares very deeply about Alan. I mean, obviously we see that with him bringing Ella into the fold. Yes, it is kind of a, a mutually beneficial situation with, you know, this being a crucial part of his research with Ella, but I don't think that he would have pursued that particular route if it wasn't something that he felt would be very, very uh, beneficial to Alan as well. Jeffrey is always very quick to come to Alan's defense or say what's on his mind if he sees something that he feels is harmful to Alan. I mentioned him lashing out against Dr. Weissman and Linda when he sees them at the hospital after Alan's suicide attempt. He, you know, calls Linda a clinical cunt and goes in on Dr. Weissman to much the same degree and, you know, is really combative when he sees that someone is not working in Alan's best interest. He truly is a great friend and when he finds Alan Alan after his suicide attempt. You can just understand what's going on in his head, how impactful and um, just difficult that would have been in that situation to have someone that you care about um, in that situation and, and want to do everything that you can to help them, but not necessarily knowing what the best route is. He also just tries to, uh, you know, continue to have that normal relationship with Alan, where all the other relationships that Alan has in his life seem to have shifted after his accident, which I would argue that maybe some, uh, you know, are unavoidable. When we're at that welcome home party, Alan's coach is there and you know it's uh dr weisman has this really uncomfortable moment where the the coach introduces himself and he's like yeah uh, yeah well that's not happening anymore huh so it's great to have a character that's really invested in kind of keeping a, a sense of normalcy for alan and again i think truly truly cares for him but this is all to say that as good of a friend as alan is he's kind of a terrible person he is uh you know, his research and his research subjects, his treatment of those research subjects is awful, but we also come to understand that that's just part of the institution that he is employed with. 
there is a sadness when Jeffrey is taken out. Um, you know, he's a character that we have come to, I think, relate to in some ways. We always want the best for our friends, and if we see our friends being done dirty, we want to come and defend them in any way that we can. We care about the people that we care about, and we care about them in really intense ways sometimes. And so, you know, sometimes those translate into really kind of great and productive and, and healthy uh, actions, and sometimes they result in some of the things that Jeffrey does, but you never really question his care. And it is really sad when he is taken out by Ella, although it is very fitting. And it's kind of surprising that Alan doesn't necessarily have the strongest reaction to that because, you know, Jeffrey hasn't done anything uh, really to him in a super direct way. Again, bringing in Ella when he's lied to both him and Melanie about uh, the research that he's been doing on her it in the experimentation i think obviously is the precipice of all of this but um you know i i would think that alan in a, a certain kind of logical way would be able to be like well but he also was doing this to help me and could not have conceived that ella would act in these kinds of violent ways so um, you know, Jeffrey's a really complex character, but it's great to have a friend that is just kind of ultimately supportive, and we kind of get this uh, kind of complex character with that as well. I've talked about the intersection of mental health and disability a handful of times here, and this film, while not making an explicit point, puts a real interesting stamp on this topic. I don't think I'm saying anything revolutionary when I say that being hit by a vehicle would classify as a traumatic event, but there's not even a mention of this or an offer of any kind of specific services that would help Alan in that way as we receive, as we see him returning home. I mean, not only is Alan probably dealing with the trauma of the accident itself, but after effects. His life has changed in massive ways, and it doesn't even register as an afterthought as we're looking at what his return home looks like. There are a number of different studies that will look at the intersection of mental health and disability, and one of the things that I think comes out from many of these studies is that there's really two components at play. One, which I've just kind of hit on, is that individuals with disabilities often go undiagnosed with different mental health issues because the focus is on perhaps physical disability. So it's more about the physical care and the depression, anxiety, and other things will often go either undiagnosed or, uh, I, I, I don't know what the exact right word is, but kind of just overlooked in general. Well, if we're able to manage some of these physical symptoms, then the mental health issues will sort themselves out, and that's not how it works at all. And I applaud this film for kind of going there in a lot of ways. We see that Alan has access to so many different resources and tools and things to make his transition home fairly easy from a physical regard. We see his house has been set up with all of these different things to help give him independence and autonomy that make some of the day-to-day -day activities feasible and more comfortable for him. Now, that should be it, right? As long as he has those things, he shouldn't have a care in the world. Everything is fine. Well, that's always the assumption, but that's not the truth. There's still a lot of emotional and mental uh, kind of things to piece and process through, and none of that is addressed. And I think particularly individuals that acquire disability via accident or trauma, or, you know, even those that are born with disabilities and undergo 
you know, that spend time in a hospital, let's say, for a surgery or a procedure, and we then return home. There's no kind of mental health aspect to that transition. So um, that's one component. The second component is really just looking at things from a much more long-term perspective. If we look at Alan's situation, you know, we're looking at huge life changes, changes in relationships, all things that we've touched on here, and having that built-in emotional and mental health support, I think, is really crucial to making sure that you're getting the best health outcomes. So, again, it's often things that we don't see as part of an ongoing care plan, but are really crucial in, you know, the holistic uh, care of an individual. Although I referenced it, I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about Alan's suicide attempt. The attempted suicide happens fairly early in the film and feels like a true gut punch. Once he's released from the hospital following, it isn't really brought up at all. And I think a lot of this is fueled by stigma and fear. And this, once again, leaves Alan without the kind of services that he needs. There have been a number of studies that highlight how individuals living with spinal cord injuries experience suicidal ideation at a higher percentage than other groups. And a lot of these studies were actually uh, starting to come out um, in the 70s and were following um, individuals with spinal cord injuries through like 20 or so years and really tracking uh, some of this information. But there's an estimated 5 to 10% of spinal cord injury patients that contemplate suicide, six times higher than in the general population, according to the Kessler Institute in New Jersey, one of the nation's top rehabilitation centers. Suicide is often cited as being one of the leading causes of death of individuals living with spinal cord injuries, usually behind pulmonary or lung disease. Death by suicide is higher among younger individuals under the age of 55 and usually occurs within the first few years of their injury. Jeffrey finds Alan after his attempt and is able to get him to the hospital and get him help. He's admitted and Dr. Weissman is there and prescribes him some medications and that's it. That's really all that happens as a result of this. I think Jeffrey reeling a bit from the experience himself and wanting to do something for his friend then has the idea to uh, give him Ella as a service animal. And then that's when we get him working with Melanie and we get into that story. I really wish that there was a lot more to kind of piece out in terms of how people reacted to this, the kind of supports that were introduced, the conversations that were had, but this film just kind of puts it out there and that's it. And as frustrating as that can be, I think it's unfortunately realistic, particularly probably of this time, because I would say that things have perhaps gotten a little better with inclusion of mental health services and overall care plans. But it's, you know, I still think uh, a real common issue and it's an interesting and important inclusion into this film. I want to wrap up talking about the film's story by talking about the ending. In a delightful change of pace, our protagonist that uses a wheelchair now has the ability to walk again because of course he fucking does. Tale as old as time. A happy ending for a disabled character relies solely on them no longer being disabled. 
so we may have a level of perceived worth in society. So let's go back to that uh, misdiagnosis of sorts by Dr. Weissman. So Alan and Melanie go and get a second opinion because Alan is knowing is noticing that he's able to get some movement in his arm or notices kind of like a flinch. And so they go, and this is when it's discovered that he has what's called a congenital uh, defect of the spine. This film does nothing to further explain it, show it, whatever. But the doctor states, you know, it's just uh, an issue with your spine. The paralysis is more than likely caused by this, and it could have happened at any time. It could have happened when you were walking across the street. Well, what's interesting about this is if we go all the way back to the very beginning of the film, when Alan is going out for his run, he loads up a backpack full of bricks. And I'm that's not hyperbole. It's I'm not exaggerating. It's literally a backpack full of bricks that he straps to himself along with like weights on his wrist and ankles. It's a lot and it's maybe the most ridiculous aspect of this film because who the fuck does this? Um, you know, I've seen people that will, you know, have some weight of a backpack with, you know, a little bit of weight to it, but not one that's literally filled with bricks um, to go for a run. One of the things that I've noticed, I go to a climbing gym and when individuals are getting ready to like go on a big outdoor climbing trip one of the things that they'll do as part of like their prep is utilize the stair machines and put kind of have with them a backpack that has you know the weight of what they would carry so that they can be used to kind of carrying that extra weight because when you are climbing you have to carry a lot of supplies a lot of gear on you and it's really heavy so that makes sense having a little bit of weight to you as you go for a run um in i think specific ways makes sense putting a bunch of fucking bricks in a backpack makes no sense. So why this guy's spine wasn't fucking condensed to dust to begin with is a medical marvel, to be frankly honest, I would posit. But again, I'm not a doctor, so don't take that with any uh, actual uh, merit there. But yeah, it's it, but the doctor is able to go in and perform a surgery that repairs this issue. And so we get at the very end, Alan being able to to walk. Now, he's not running. He's not, he still, you know, has some recovery ahead of him, and I do appreciate that, but um, it's really frustrating to have a character that I think his whole journey has been about kind of coming to terms with, hey, this is my life now, and it's not actually that bad. He's able to go back to school. He has a lot of independence. He has a girlfriend that he has a sexual relationship with. These are all things that are set up as him losing as a result of his accident. He loses Linda. His professor is at the welcome party and there's this really awkward conversation about, well, can he go back to school? Well, physically he can, but will he want to? Well, why wouldn't he necessarily want to go back to school if it's something that he has worked really hard for? It's something that he wants to continue so that he has a life in law. That's what his passion is. It's, he has access to all of these things while using a wheelchair. And it's a really kind of great representation of, of being able to live fully in that regard. 
but it's completely counteracted by this ending. Now, there is an alternate ending where we, I believe, instead get um, Jeffrey's supervisor being attacked by monkeys, and I don't know. I, this is obviously an ending to go with, but I don't know. It just, it rubs me the wrong way for that reason of just, you're actually setting up a character that is living a pretty great life and we still only can find value in it if they are no longer disabled. I don't know. It just, it's, it just really, really puts a damper on, I think, some of the stronger aspects of this film. Now, to wrap up the discussion of this film totally, I will uh, mention that this film brought on protests by disability, uh, advocacy groups one being pace which if you uh know anything about kind of the disability uh rights movement pace is an organization that was known for staging protests particularly around public transportation and these were individuals that would you know chain their wheelchairs to buses to protest against inaccessibility to public transportation and they, of course, beyond that, were really active in the ADA, which, again, the ADA came out right around the time of this film. Um, but were, you know, they were really active in uh, ADA movement as well as the Olmsted Act. So, um, but they protested this film due primarily to the marketing. There was this whole marketing uh, kind of campaign around uh, showcasing a monkey in a wheelchair, and the organizations kind of uh, bristled against that and its portrayal. And so the company ended up pulling the marketing. I believe not only did they have some issue with the marketing images here, but also, you know, the portrayal of an individual with a disability and a service animal, which, you know, I... I actually think is decent. You know, we've talked about how, you know, the using the service animal as essentially a scapegoat for not dealing with just general frustration and anger um, is pretty awful. But all that aside, um, you know, it, I, I think it's interesting to note that this was a film that came under some scrutiny from some pretty prominent groups in the kind of disability advocacy arena. So that will conclude the episode on monkey shines again thank you for listening i hope this has been a uh, an interesting conversation i to be completely honest i really did like this film i thought it was really interesting i think the uh acting in it is really really good um and it's such i i think if you are used to a very specific type of george romero film this is going to be something very different and yeah, I really like it. If you happen to have HBO Max, I know it's accessible there. So if you haven't seen it, give it a watch. I I really like it. And you get a a young Stanley Tucci as Dr. Weissman. And you know you want to see it. So check it out. Bodies of Horror is a very proud member of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. If you haven't already, please make sure that you take a moment to subscribe. And while you're doing that, rate review. Those are really, really helpful in helping other people not only find bodies of horror, but find all of the amazing shows on Anatomy of a Scream's feed. So make sure you do that. It's really appreciated. Now, if you want to reach out to me, that's also appreciated. You can do so by shooting me an email at 
bodiesofhorror at gmail.com or you can find Bodies of Horror on Twitter at Bodies of Horror. Keeping it all pretty simple for you. So, again, thank you so much for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And until next time. And we're back. Uh, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing this episode on Monkey Shines. And so for our, and we're going to tell you where you can find more of Nicole in just a minute. But what we are watching next is uh, our first episode in January is going to be a new theme. And it's one that I have a lot of thoughts about and a lot of connections to. We are going to be covering addiction and this is a Patreon requested theme. We are going to be watching the 1995 film, The Addiction, starring Lily Taylor and Christopher Walken, young hot Christopher Walken. So make sure to check that out. But for now, let's wrap up with some plugs. Nicole, where can we find you and more of Bodies of Horror? And uh, you already mentioned a couple of things coming up, but is there anything else you'd like to plug? And in terms of upcoming episodes that you can anticipate on Bodies of Horror, um, really excited about those. But no, you can find me on Twitter at Bodies of Horror. Pretty straightforward there. <laughs> um, or, you know, I always, one of the things that I always like to ask is, and I think you guys do such a fantastic job at doing this with how you engage with listeners, of, you know, if there's, films that you're you know wanting to suggest or recommend you know my list of films that cover disability is by no means <laughs> complete mm -hmm. so suggestions always welcome <laughs> so you can send those to bodies of horror at gmail.com Awesome. And that is our episode on Monkey Shines, our first ever guest pod episode. Nicole, thank you so much for joining us for this and for sharing your fantastic episode with us. Listeners, please make sure to check out more episodes of Bodies of Horror. I really mean it. If you like our show, you will love that show as well. I kind of see them as sister shows in a lot of ways. Um, um, listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Please sure, make sure to take care of yourself and take care of each other. And Nicole, would you care to sign off with me? Uh, <laughs> we, came, <laughs> we came here to chew bubble gum and take care of ourselves. And we're, we're all out of, out of bubble, bubble gum. gum.